listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And joining me today to discuss a few recent developments with pipelines and infrastructure here in the U.S. is IER's Director of Policy, Kenny Stein. Kenny, it's good to see you back in the office here. Yep, good to be here. For people who aren't really familiar with the energy industry, you know, what what are pipelines and what role do they play in the energy supply chain? Sure, there's so pipelines, obviously people I think people have an idea of what, you know, it's a tube running through the ground or sometimes above ground. Um, but it's moving either oil or natural gas, depending on the pipeline. Um, and but it also moves other, you know, uh, an oil pipeline also moves other, you know, liquid products. If you can have gasoline moving through pipelines, you can have diesel, you can have uh, various various types of crude oil, refined oil. There's a lot of different things that can travel through a liquid, but it's usually there's a liquid pipeline versus a gas pipeline, um, and they're actually the crucial backbone of all our energy infrastructure in the not just in the United States in the world, but certainly in the United States, because. The amount of oil, uh, refined products, and natural gas that's moved around the country—you you can't move that, you know, by by a truck or even even by ships. Like we did partly, well, the Jones Act, but it's just the volume that you have to move uh, is almost impossible to do any other way than having a permanent pipeline in the ground uh, that can move continuously, night or day. Connecting, you know, there's normally a major, there's major pipelines that are like the sort of the, the long distance through fares. And then there's lots of smaller uh, branches that go off to individual cities. And then obviously that breaks down into individual homes, businesses. Um, so it's a giant spiderweb network that really covers uh, virtually every, every, you know, every square mile in the United States, pretty much there's, except for some national parks and some wilderness, uh, pretty much the whole country is covered by some sort of pipeline network. Throughout the history of the environmental movement, pipelines have seemed to be a target for them in terms of wanting to block energy development. But over the past decade, especially, it seems like pipelines have been much more of a target. Why is that the case uh, this over well, the past couple of years specifically? Why does it seem like pipelines seem to be making the headlines? Right. Well, it's it's more that the noise level on pipelines has risen in the last couple of years. I mean, historically, the, the ever since the National Environmental Policy Act has been in place, environmentalists have used uh, NEPA to try and slow down pipelines and stop them from being built. Um, but it was normally done as um, partly as a property rights or as a not in my backyard or as, you know, trying to protect a, you know, a specific river or a specific feature that the pipeline was crossing. Um, but more recently, uh, partly because the keep it in the ground folks, the idea, the people that don't want oil and gas to be produced in the United States, uh, they originally tried to stop wells from being drilled in the first place through through setbacks, through bans, um, through investigations of fracking and various lies about pollution. But they failed miserably at that. Even the Obama administration didn't go along with that stuff. So they kind of shifted their focus to, well, if we can't stop them from drilling, we're going to stop them from moving their product around the country. And that's where they started targeting pipelines uh, as a way to, if the idea is that they could choke off the transportation, then the value of the natural gas oil at the well would go down to the point where it wasn't worth even drilling anymore. So it's, it's sort of a change of tactics for them. And as part of that change of tactics, it's become a PR war. They've started, you know, having trying to have photogenic people 
laying their bodies down in front of the construction equipment, you know, make it very dramatic and, you know, try and get attention for all these projects. Given just the nature of what it means to build a pipeline, it's, you know, a large infrastructure project that's going through a bunch of different jurisdictions. And because of that, it's going to bring a lot of different uh, sort of political actors into play. Is that part of the, the I guess, the allure for environmentalists in terms of bringing on litigation that projects like this bring on a lot of opportunities? Sure. For? Yeah, there's 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 pressure points all along the way. And this, and this is the thing is that pipelines have always been fairly difficult to build because you're building it over through multiple states. Now, you know, for an oil pipeline, that's regulated at the state level. So each state has to approve it. Natural gas pipelines are regulated at the federal level, but there's still some state approvals that have to be made. But so you need, you know, you need water permits, you need land use permits, you need to get easements through all the property that you're passing through. And that's going to be private property. Some of that's going to be state property. Some of it's going to be federal property. So at every stage along there, there's opportunities for litigation. There's there's eminent domain fights. There's going to be uh, you know endangered species fights, water permit fights. So there there are a lot of pressure points, and this has always been a problem for pipelines. It's pipelines take a long time to build. They're very expensive because of all this litigation that has to happen. But the environmentalists have sort of turned it up to eleven, where they sue at every single possible point that they could that anybody could imagine. And just it slows some of these things down to a crawl and you start tacking on billions in costs uh, to these infrastructure projects. So in instances where these projects aren't completed, is it actually the case that blocking pipeline development, does that mean that our energy resources, fossil fuels uh, are not being developed at all? Uh, because we know there's other ways that we can transport oil and natural gas, right? There's sure. rail and by by truck and and, and things. So is this strategy actually effective at blocking uh, the development of those resources in the way that they think it is? Yeah, it, not at all, frankly, because those resources are going to be developed. The Before the, the Dakota Access Pipeline's pipeline we're going to talk about, but that goes from North Dakota to the Midwestern refiners. But before Dakota Access didn't, exi didn't exist, uh, the oil produced in North Dakota in the Bakken um, couldn't get to those Midwestern refineries or East Coast refineries, um, but it was still produced. It was just put on a train and shipped, you know, by rail to all these refineries. Um, so it doesn't. It truly doesn't stop this production. If the, the and the same thing you talk about um, the amount of natural gas that's being produced in Pennsylvania, uh, the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut have been very aggressive about stopping pipelines from crossing their state, which prevents that cheap Pennsylvania natural gas from getting to New England, which really needs natural gas, especially in the winter. But that doesn't mean Pennsylvania is not producing the gas. They are just shipping it uh, to Maryland to export it, or they're shipping it to Texas. Same thing, the natural gas production in Texas, if they can't uh, sell it in the United States, uh, they're building LNG projects to export it overseas. Same thing with oil. So the the uh, preventing these pipelines from being built, certainly it raises costs, raises costs not just for the pipeline, but it raises costs, like I said, in New England. Uh, natural gas is wildly expensive uh, during the winter for no reason. We have a huge surplus of natural gas in Pennsylvania, a few hundred miles away, but it can't get to New England. So they have to, for example, they have to buy gas to be imported from Russia, which happens most winters. So it, it raises costs, it makes things more expensive everywhere, but it doesn't actually stop oil or natural gas from being produced because, frankly, the technology improvements and the global demand for these resources is there and is not going away. And so, you know, interfering with the infrastructure certainly raises costs, but it doesn't truly stop anything.
Hey, let's talk about the uh, the Dakota Access Project. Last week, a federal judge in Washington here uh, ordered the pipeline to be shut down. And this has been a project that's had a lot of attention on it probably for the past decade or so. Right. Give a short timeline of the project and I guess the um, controversies or right. debates that have surrounded it leading up to uh, what's developed this past month or so. Right. Well, what's what's interesting about the fight over the Dakota Access Pipeline is that the pipeline's already built and operating. Uh, so unlike a lot of other pipeline fights where they're trying to stop the route from being built, Dakota Access Pipeline's already done, uh, went into service in 2017. But if you remember about five years ago, uh, there was the Standing Rock Sioux, the Native American tribe, one of the Native American tribes, um, up in the Dakotas, uh, sort of became the the face of opposition to the Dakota Access Pipeline. And this is, again, this is about PR. The environmentalists who opposed it found some photogenic Native Americans uh, to stand there and say, oh, this is potentially going to destroy our water supply because at one point the Dakota Access Pipeline goes under a reservoir that is relatively close to the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. It, so the pipeline doesn't actually cross their reservation, but it goes under uh, a major water supply for the reservation. So the the argument here from the Standing Rock Sioux is, oh, the danger of this spill would, you know, we wouldn't have water. And because it was a Native American tribe rather than just some whiny college kids from Chicago or something, that they, they became sort of the, 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 the poster child, children for preventing this pipeline. And the reason that Partly that it was chosen was the Native Americans, but also because this Bakken oil that's being moved, most of what's being moved in this pipeline, is uh, was developed through fracking, which is another bugbear of the of the environmentalist movement. So the idea was shut down this pipeline pipeline to stop fracking in North Dakota and protect you know Native Americans in this pristine environment. Um, they they failed. They did they they. Despite all their activism, like the pipeline was built and it's been running for several years, but they've continued to litigate even as the, as the pipeline's already in operation. And so that's what happened last week is that um, a judge decided that um, because the Army Corps of Engineers did what, this is what I mentioned earlier, the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA. So the Army Corps of Engineers did what is called an environmental assessment for this for this section of the pipeline that goes under the lake. Um, the judge decided that they should have done an environmental impact statement, which is a higher level of analysis, because reasons. Basically, the judge decided that they should have. The problem is with an EIS, environmental impact statement, it takes much longer. It's a lot more expensive. You're talking about hundreds, even thousands of pages. You're talking a year or more of time. and. For a pipeline that is, I believe it's like 90 feet underneath the lake bed. So it's not like crossing the lake at all. It's 90 feet below the lake. It doesn't, con it doesn't contact with the water at any point. The Army Corps decided that an environmental assessment was more than enough for this pipeline that's not even touching the water. But a judge decided, oh, well, no, I disagree with you. I'm going to make you do more. That specific concern about safety in terms of the water reservoir um What's the track record of pipelines in, ter in terms of <laughs> well, right, safety that's what's, there? Yeah. That's what's so ironic. Well, first of all, there's a number of pipelines crossing near and under the same lake and river uh, that the Dakota Access Pipeline crosses under. So there's other pipelines, actually older pipelines that, you know, an, the older a pipeline gets, the more the higher risk there actually is of some sort of spill. So it's ironic that they're they're concerned about the new 
high-tech pipeline and not the old pipeline that could be getting worn out. But the as far as just overall safety, the a pipeline is by far the safest way to move oil or natural gas because it's away from, you know, moving it in a truck, you uh, trucks crash. Uh, if you put oil in a train, trains crash. This and this is something we saw actually we don't we don't hear about it very much anymore because the, the, there used to be these oil trains, you know, f 5 years ago or so when all the shale from North Dakota was moving on trains, you kept hearing about oil cr train crashes and spills and sometimes fires and people were getting very upset about it. You don't hear about that as much anymore because the Dakota Access Pipeline was built and that oil has been going through a pipeline instead of riding on the rails. So when you look at the the accident, the spill amounts and the accident numbers, uh, pipelines are statistically wildly more safer. They're safer than ship, safer than train, safer than truck. So it's absolutely the safest way to move it. And again, we talk about the specific issue of the Standing Rock Sioux. Well, Instead of having a pipeline that passes somewhere in the vicinity of the reservation, you've got you know long oil trains traveling in the vicinity of their reservation that are more likely to spill. So it, it's I, clearly this this isn't about safety. If it was about safety, you would want more pipelines, and frankly, you'd, you'd almost want to ban moving oil by rail and only have it move through pipelines if that's what you really cared about was safety. So it's it's entirely a pretext, um, and obviously pipelines. Do spill sometimes. That absolutely happens, especially older pipelines, which is why you should be supporting building new pipelines to replace old pipelines. Sure. Um, but it does happen. But the thing is, is that when you talk about the total volume of spills and damage, it's still even the amount of oil spills that actually that do happen pale in comparison to truck crashes, train crashes, uh, ship ship cr ships crashing into each other and spilling in, directly into waterways. It's it's not even comparable how much safer pipelines are. And I was just reading this morning, there's been some developments, I guess the um, the ruling by the judge has been right. overruled yeah, today. The, yeah, right. The D.C. Circuit, uh, not the D.C. Circuit, but the, the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, um, did they stayed that ruling from the lower level judge. And basically, well, the judge had ordered that the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, not just that the this EIS needed to be done by the Army Corps, but that the Dakota Access Pipeline needed to be ceased operation and drain all the oil out of it until this assessment was done. Again, talking about more than a year. So the economic damage was going to be ridiculous. But the appeals court did stay that decision and said, you know what, you don't have to shut it down while you continue to litigate whether an AIS was in fact required as they appeal up. So that at least staves off the the, the economic damage. But this is still, again, ongoing litigation. And this is a uh, sort of Damocles kind of hanging over not just the Dakota Access Pipeline, but this sort of game that judges want to play hangs over all pipelines, and it increases the risk for any pipeline, anybody who's building a pipeline. It increases their potential costs. It makes the Army Corps uh, feel like it needs to do more of these environmental impact statements for every pipeline, even when it's not really necessary, which again, adds costs, adds time, um, all because some activists and some friendly judges uh, are getting in the way. You know, another project that has been in the news this week is the the Atlantic Coast Pipeline in uh, Virginia. Can you just talk a little bit about that sure. project as well? Yeah, it's well, so the Atlantic Coast Pipeline is, in contrast, Dakota Access is oil, but Atlantic Coast is a natural gas pipeline. And it was meant to come from West Virginia down through Virginia and also into North Carolina. And the idea was the 
was talking about the surplus gas that I was mentioning before in Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia. The idea was to move that cheap surplus gas uh, down into the, the North Carolina and Virginia to lower gas prices you know, for electricity generation and for home heating. Um, so the Atlantic Coast Pipeline travels, the, this was seized upon as by the environmentalists as, as a great test case uh, for them to fight. And partly because it crosses over some federal land um, uh, in the Appalachian Mountains, um, and it also crosses the Appalachian Trail. So they started multi-pronged litigation, one of which was claiming that the Appalachian Trail couldn't be crossed by a pipeline, even though the pipeline was going to be hundreds of feet below the Appalachian Trail. It was underground. So it was you couldn't see it or even touch it from the Appalachian Trail. Um, so they found some, again, they found some lower court judges that were willing to go along with this novel uh, obnoxious uh, route. Supreme Court eventually struck it down and said that the Appalachian Trail is an easement on top of the land. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that there's no development all the way to the center of the earth, which of course makes sense because there's hundreds of pipelines that cross the Appalachian Trail. The Appalachian Trail runs from Georgia all the way to Maine. So it's crossed by hundreds of pipelines all along its route. It was preposterous that you couldn't build a pipeline underneath the Appalachian Trail. So, but they finally won that case, but this was only one of many cases. There are, there are multiple, there's other permitting issues um, crossing the, uh, the federal forest that this crosses under. There were uh, property rights battles in Virginia trying to stop um, them from using eminent domain. Uh, altogether, these things had been adding up and a project that I think was originally, they were estimating around $5 billion. It already, it's ballooned, cost had ballooned all the way up to $8 billion with no end in sight. There was still a lot of uncertainty. Um, and so the developers uh, finally decided to abandon it just, in, just about a week and a half ago, made the announcement that they just weren't going to do it because the cost had gotten so out of control and the litigation was still ongoing and that sort of thing. Um, the one thing, though, is what's interesting is that, and this is just an aside as part of the, all these pipeline battles, there are, there are other pipelines being built to bring that gas from the Marcellus to North Carolina, to Virginia. Uh, one of them is the Mountain Valley pipeline, pipeline that's still on course. So the environmentalists managed to stop a pipeline, uh, but there are dozens of other pipelines under construction all over the country to move this gas around. And it's, you know, they've got, they got one victory, but they are very much kind of losing the war. That honestly. was going to be my next question, actually, was these two stories are kind of dominating the headlines, but what does the overall picture in the U.S. look like? in terms of right. other projects that are being right. built. The total mileage of, of pipelines that's been built in the last four or five years has been enormous. And that's been because of the domestic boom in uh, energy production, not oil and natural gas, particularly because the oil and natural gas is being produced in areas that it hadn't been in the past. So the North, North Dakota had, has a history of some oil production, but nowhere on the scale that they've had in the last 10 years from fracking. Uh, same thing in, in Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia. There had been some natural gas production and some oil, and historically a good amount of oil production. But the natural gas uh, that had been unleashed from the Marcellus, uh, again, through fracking, had created in this massive glut of natural gas. And there weren't natural gas pipelines to move that gas. Like there was, there's natural gas pipelines to move gas around in, you know, in Texas or in California or in, or in Alaska, where there's a, you know, decades worth of production. But so there's a lot of new pipelines that are needing to be built because of there's all this new production. Same thing in Texas. They're having to build a bunch. They're, even Texas, which has a lot of oil 
pipeline infrastructure, has had to build a lot more new pipeline infrastructure because, again, suddenly Texas is no longer all going to the refineries. Uh, a lot of it's being exported. And so that means new pipelines to new uh, export ports. So that's part of why pipelines have suddenly become a big thing recently is that there's been a lot of new construction. So, and it's been starting to affect a lot of people that it hadn't affected in the past. Um, so the people in Virginia that are the landowners fighting, you know, so wildly to try and keep a pipeline from coming anywhere near their land. Well, historically, there was never a pipeline that wanted to go through their land. So they didn't, they didn't even have a concept of what, what eminent domain was or, you know, where pipe, what a pipeline route might entail. So that's part of why there's been a lot of, particularly the property rights resistance has been new because it's new people that don't have, don't have experience of pipelines. But all that said, even with all the resistance, the sheer, the economic uh, weight of all this cheap gas, all this cheap oil that needs to get to market has had us building hundreds of miles of pipeline every year. And even the projects that get abandoned, you've got Atlantic Coast Pipeline. There's also been some projects crossing New York State that have been for, had to be abandoned recently because the New York State government refuses to permit anything. Um, but those are those are blips, kind of in the larger. We're building pipelines everywhere to move this abundance of uh, energy all around the country. The uh, Trump administration has looked at rolling back some of, of the regulations that stand in the way of these things. And I believe just this week, uh, there's NEPA reform that came out. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and the role that it plays in pipeline development going forward? Sure. So a lot of a lot of the litigation that we've been talking about has been based on the Natural, National Environmental Policy Act, as I've said a couple of times. And that was about when it was originally passed in 1970. It's a very simple statute. It just says um, that you need to uh, consider environmental impacts of any federal project. And so NEPA affects not just pipelines, it affects highways. Um, you know, if you're building any federal building, uh, building on a, near a federal waterway or water, wetlands, you have to, the point is to consider environmental impacts. But that has mutated over the decades into this monster where you have to, courts try and force the Army Corps and the federal government to consider every possible thing imaginable. And in order to cover their own butts, in order to keep from this litigation dragging on forever, they they write an environmental impact statement that covers everything, even something that's never going to happen, an endangered species that doesn't actually live there, but you know maybe might might fly in and land for a few seconds and then leave. You know, they, it, it's preposterous how minute these environmental assessments have had to get. And this is recognized, honestly, this is a bipartisan, it's recognized that this is a problem because these, this, the, the ridiculousness of NEPA holds up long distance electricity transmission, which is needed for, uh, if you ever wanna get anywhere close to 100% renewables, you need a lot of new transmission lines because wind and solar farms aren't built in the middle of cities, they're built out in the middle of nowhere. So you gotta get that electricity, you gotta move it around. Uh, NEPA also affects the siting when you build a wind farm or when you're when you're building a solar farm and chopping down a bunch of trees, or you're building a wind farm on federal land, there's NEPA analysis that has to go into that as well. So honestly, the problems with NEPA are well understood to be a bipartisan issue. It holds up all infrastructure that either either party, whatever partisans like, whatever infrastructure they like, NEPA holds it up. But the problem is, is that Congress has never saw seen fit to take any action on this. So the Trump administration actually just is basically improving the updating the guidelines for NEPA because this is it's been decades since the the 
Council for Environmental Quality wrote the regulations for implementing NEPA. And so they're trying to consolidate things and make clear, like every, every right now, every agency does NEPA a little differently because they have their own guidelines. This is trying to standardize the guidelines across all agencies, help agencies work together, uh, the limit, the, the time that it takes to do them, the amount of paperwork that is involved in it. It's also limiting the scope of them, basically saying that we, you only need to do check the environmental effects of direct impacts of the project, not esoteric things or, you know, for say an oil pipeline, you don't have to consider, you know, the oil pipeline, Dakota Access Pipeline goes to a refinery in Illinois, it's refined, it's shipped down to Florida, it's used by a car, you know, you sure. don't have to consider the end use, you really just have, you have to consider the impacts of the actual pipeline. So that's actually an important, that could have a very significant impact because part of what increases the costs and time that goes into NEPA is those all those second and third order issues that Everybody knows, the Army Corps knows that that's, there's no environmental impact from that. Everybody really understands that that's kind of silly, but it's done to cover for litigation. Just in case someone sues, they need to have every I dotted, every T crossed, or else you end up with a Dakota Access Pipeline situation where they're trying to get something shut down that's already in operation. So I guess just to wrap up on uh, big picture scheme of things here, it seems like pipeline development is still going well and there's a lot of new projects there's a few that are in the headlines that um, have drawn a lot of attention how important is it for not just energy development but for the economy for people to accept a culture of building big projects like this and being okay i guess with uh with the change that comes about in terms of uh economic de development right well the i think the key is is the key for pipelines is that being able to move oil and natural gas around the country quickly and cheaply lowers the cost of everything we do in our lives. It's not, it's not just our, it lowers our gas prices, but it makes it cheaper to heat our homes. It makes it cheaper to transport goods around. It makes it cheaper to, to uh, generate electricity at the stores we shop at. I mean, being able, having flexible energy, being able to move it around where it's needed, where it's, if you have a, if you have a cold snap, if you have a you know polar vortex in Minnesota and they need more natural gas to heat their homes, you need a pipeline network to get them that gas or else you have people freezing to death. So having that flexibility is hugely important. And that comes from having pipelines you, because you can't, when you have a polar vortex, you can't just you know throw up a pipeline to ship them some more. You have to have that extra capacity already in place. And so that's what's really important that people need to understand that this pipeline network, it undergirds our prosperity, our modern society. All, uh, so many of the things we take for granted are available because of that cheap energy that's being moved around that we can get it whenever we want to. If, you, if you're up in New England and it gets cold, you can heat your home immediately because natural gas is available. And that's because of pipeline. My guest today has been Kenny Stein from IR here. Kenny, thank you for taking the time to talk to them. Yep, thanks.